Let's turn our attention to the scripture. As we've been walking through the story of Joseph, today we're going to come to the point where his brothers and Joseph, when they actually meet, his brothers don't realize it. But I want you to hear their words as they begin to realize their guilt is catching up to them. Genesis chapter 42, verse 21, the brothers speaking to one another. Here's what they say. In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. Let's stop right there. Have a seat. If you're unfamiliar with with what's happening in the story, we'll catch you up to speed. We'll we'll do a, a brief review of the life of Joseph. But in short, in this moment, the brothers of Joseph, they are realizing their guilt from all these years ago, 20 years ago, we're going to find, selling their brother into slavery. For these 20 years, they've been carrying this guilt with them. And today, that's what we're going to talk about. But I want to start by by sharing with you a story of someone else that I know that was carrying some guilt that I had a relationship with. This, This goes back years ago. In our household, over the years, we've had numerous people come and live with us during different seasons. So I'm the oldest of of four boys. We've had many of my brothers live with us from time to time. We've had teenagers come live with us. And at one point, we had a young man who was living with us. And this young man, he was was trying to sort out the direction of his life. He, he He was being pulled toward Christ and the things of God. But at the same time, he had a lot of things in the world pulling him away. And so as he was living with us, I... I was probably too young for it, but I took on the dad role, trying to train him in, in responsibility and looking to the Lord. And, and in that season, he was some days doing the right thing and some days not so much. But, but the deal is, because he was part of our house, he shared in the household responsibilities. And so there came a day where uh, I noticed that he had left and he didn't take care of just the basic responsibilities of being part of the household. And so adults, parents in the room, you guys, this is a conversation you've probably had a hundred million times, right? And so when he came home that day, I I went and I just was going to have a conversation with him. I went out in front of the house. It was a nice sunny day. And I went and I said, hey, we got to talk about a few things. And immediately he said, oh, I know I'm I'm so sorry. And his level of remorse was much deeper than I expected for whatever the chores that he didn't do. And yeah, we, we, we had a talk. And, and he goes, Mike, I, I am so sorry. I know you saw me. I said, yeah. I had no idea what he was talking about. I was completely clueless. I'm pretty sure I was going to talk to him about something like making your bed and doing the dishes. I, I was clueless in that moment. Yeah, I did. Why don't you tell me about it? And he begins to confess how the day before, he, without his license, was driving his girlfriend's car, and he drove by me, and he was certain as the day is long, he was certain that our eyes met as we drove by each other. And for the last 24 hours, he had been waiting for when he and I were together, and I was going to call him to the carpet for it. And so in this moment, he lays out the story, he confesses all of this, and and at the end of the day, his guilt, his guilt was shadowed over him. 
He was carrying around the fact that he had wrong, that he was betraying our trust, that he was doing all sorts of other stuff as well. We'll talk about it another day. But at the end of the day, he brought it forward and he, he ended up having some freedom from the confession. He, he ended up in, in his repentance being able to move forward in a way that was, was full of life, not full of darkness, that was full of light and hope. And, and that's, a, that's a brief picture of what we're going to look at today. If you've been following along with us, the life of Joseph, let me give you a, a kind of in a nutshell, the review. Joseph was 17 years old when his brothers sold him into slavery. His brothers sold him into slavery in part because Joseph was his father's favorite. And to make matters worse, Joseph knew it. And Joseph was having these dreams and he was describing these dreams to his brothers. And they were dreams of Joseph being elevated and his brothers bowing down before him. You, you can imagine the family dynamic that went on. And so when his 10 older brothers had the opportunity, they seized him and they were going to kill him, but they sold him into slavery. Keep going, Joseph's life. He ends up in Egypt in a faraway land. He ends up serving as a slave until he is falsely accused of sexual sin, and then he's thrown in prison. Last week, we saw the end of that story when he is finally elevated out of prison, and he begins to serve really as the, the prime minister over all of Egypt. He, he, besides Pharaoh, he, he becomes the one who's in charge over all of Egypt. That's what we looked at last week. But this week... This week, we're going to rewind almost. The story's going to move forward, but it's going to move forward in reference to the past. And what we're going to see is these brothers finally come face to face with Joseph. They don't know they're talking to their brother. And we're going to find that they have been, they have been walking in the darkness of their guilt. In fact, the, the big idea today as we examine this text and as we look at the truths of God that fall out of it, the, the big idea today is we're going to see that the valley of guilt is a dark place to live. Now I say that, and, and I recognize the moment I start talking about guilt, there are going to be some in this room, and your heart is going to start beating a little bit more quickly. And you're going to clench your jaw and make sure you're looking forward, and you're not looking at all to give away any signal that this is talking about you. Let me, let me just begin by saying this is not meant to be a got you sermon. This is not meant to be a, a moment where we, we point our fingers at all the wrong that you got in your life and, and really make you feel the weight of your guilt. No, we're going to talk about guilt, but you know what we're actually going to talk about is the hope that exists beyond, beyond the valley of guilt, beyond the shadow of whatever you're experiencing. It's going to take us a little bit to get there. And so let me invite you, would you open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 42? We're going to cover this entire chapter, and we're going to cover some portions of it a little bit more quickly than other portions, but we're just going to kind of grab on, and we're going to start going. We're going to continue the story of Joseph, but as we do, we're going to be looking at the big truths of the Scripture, and here is where we're going to start. I want us to see that God draws people to face their sin. Genesis 42, starting in verse 1. We're going to see God, I believe, is working behind the scenes. He is drawing these brothers to come and face the reality of their sin and of their guilt. Follow along with me, verses 1 through 5. It says, When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? 
And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now, here, here's where I want to start with. Sometimes this is the case, not always, but in this particular story, here's what I want us to see to begin. Their physical condition represented their spiritual condition. There was famine in Canaan. Their physical condition was one where there was famine in the land. But for this family in particular, which was a family of the patriarch, which was meant to be the light of God, of Yahweh on earth, their spiritual condition was a condition of famine. I mean, just look in these short few verses, some of the, the things we can pick up about the family dynamic. First of all, you see the brothers are complacent. I mean, these, these are adult men. These aren't 12-year-old boys that dad is talking to. These are adult men. And dad comes to them while there is a famine, and his words are, why are you looking at each other? It's like if you, you go home and, and you find your teenagers and, and the kitchen is a mess and their laundry is everywhere and they're playing video games. What are you going to say? You're saying, what are you doing? <laughs> you know better. You, you, you know your responsibility. The deal is these brothers, based on the father's language and the way he speaks to them, they are all looking at one another saying, who is going to be the one that steps up and owns this thing? Who is going to be the one that embraces responsibility? They're all hoping that someone else is the one who does the work. They're all stepping back when it's time for a volunteer. So dad says, why are you standing around looking at each other? They're complacent. This is the opposite of biblical masculinity, which embraces responsibility. They're looking to pass the buck. So the brothers are complacent, but even more, the father is critical. Again, look, look, at, look at this phrase. Why are you looking at each other? He, he comes down somewhat critical of them, as he should be in a sense. And, and to be critical isn't necessarily a bad thing, but combine it with what else we know about the family. Remember his favoritism of Joseph? Why did he have favoritism of Joseph? J just to review. Jacob had children from four different wives, two, or four different women. Two of them were his wives, and two of them were basically concubines. And in this relationship, he had 12 boys as well as girls. And of those 12 boys, two of those boys came from the wife that he loved. Her name was Rachel. He, he loved her. He, he cared for her more deeply. And so when she had these boys, he put his affection toward them at the expense of the others. And so not only is his father critical, but then when he sends these guys to go and take care of business, when he sends them to Egypt to go get the grain, he sends the 10 and he keeps the one. You can almost imagine if they had bubble wrap in that day, <laughs> this boy would have been wrapped in it. He's daddy's favorite. This is a spiritually dysfunctional family. This is a spiritually dysfunctional family where the brothers are complacent and the father is critical, and yet in their dysfunction, God is doing something. God is drawing them to face up to their sin. He's sending them to Egypt. Why? Because they're going to come face to face with the brother they sold into slavery. God is drawing them to deal with their sin. How about you? What's the, 
What's the likelihood that some of us in this room right now, this is exactly what God's trying to do in our life? What's the likelihood that some of us have hidden habitual sin that no one else knows about, things that we carry with us that no one has any idea about? We've become experts at playing the game, at putting on the smile, and at saying the right thing, but down beneath the surface, we're avoiding dealing with our sin at all costs. Hidden sin, you need to understand, hidden sin is the devil's playground. Hidden sin, Satan loves, even for believers, he loves when you have hidden sin because it keeps you in the shadow of your guilt. It keeps us walking in darkness. In fact, this is the default worldview of those outside of Christ. This is the default life experience. Let me show you what I mean. Ephesians chapter 4 describes those who have not trusted in Jesus and his death and resurrection. And and it's a heartbreaking picture. Look at what it says, verses 14 or 18 and 19, says they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from life, from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Look at that word callous. This is what sin does to a heart. Here's how it works. When you engage in, we'll just say a small sin. Now, we can have a theological debate about that, but for, for, for the sake of time, unless you guys want to be here till I don't know, three or four? We could, for the sake of time, let's say you engage in a small sin. In that moment, it calluses your heart just slightly. But because your heart is calloused, then the next time sin presents itself, you're not as sensitive to it. And so that you're able to go a little bit further into your sin. And so your heart becomes calloused a little bit more. And then the next time the opportunity presents itself, you go even deeper because your heart is more and more calloused. It's like if you go home and you shovel for the next three hours, you're going to develop calluses on your hands. Some of us already have them on our hands. If I were to take a little a pin and I were to poke the callus on my hand, I would have to press and press And after a little while, I would start to feel the pain. But if I was to take a two-year-old, I'm not sadistic, by the way, I would never do this. But if I was to take a two-year-old with no callus whatsoever and just barely press, it would be almost instant where they would respond because of the sensitivity. Is hidden sin callousing, making your heart callous? Is it leading you to go further down the road that you ever thought you would? Is it hardening your sensitivity to the things of God? Listen, if that's you, I I believe with my whole heart, you are here for a reason, the same reason that God sent these brothers to Egypt. God is calling you to deal with your sin. See, this callousness ends up leading to a self-deception. Follow along with me. Let's continue back to the text. You see, we all have the ability to to deceive ourselves. We all have the ability of self-deception. I want to jump into this text a little bit more and follow along. We're going to see how these brothers, they were self-deceived. Verses 6 through 11 says, Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Verse 7. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. 
They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. Let's, let's pull this apart and keep going. First thing we see, Joseph, Joseph's brothers, they do not recognize Joseph, but Joseph recognizes them. Now, just time frame here. Joseph was sold into slavery when he was 17 years old. Joseph goes into the house of Pharaoh when he's 30 years old, and we know that there's been at least seven years of abundance, and we're not sure how many years of famine there's been at this point. So we know that it has been at least 20 years since Joseph and his brothers have been face-to-face. So when they come to see him, they don't recognize him at all. The, the last thing they would expect is to find their brother as the prime minister, the ruler of Egypt aside from Pharaoh. He's clean shaven and he's probably wearing all of the, all of the Egyptian attire and they're bearded and probably ragged from their journey and maybe even from the famine. But Joseph recognized them, verses 12 through 14. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I have said to you, you are spies. Now, Joseph recognizes him, but Joseph also recognizes this as the fulfillment of his dreams. All the way back in Genesis 37, Joseph had two dreams. Remember those two dreams? The first dream is of sheaves of wheat. He and his brothers are all binding them. And then at one point, all of the sheaves of wheat bow down to Joseph's. And then the other dream is the sun and the moon and all of the stars bow down to Joseph's star. And this makes them jealous and this makes them hate him. And this has been fulfilled in this moment. Joseph's dreams have come true because God was the one behind them. This is the fulfillment of a dream, but, but here's the deal. They don't recognize him. He recognizes them, but I would go even further. I would press this idea of recognition even deeper, and I would argue that the brothers did not recognize themselves. They're self-deceived. They don't understand their character. Look at verse 11 again. They say, we are, we are all the sons of one man. Look at this. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. They mix truth and a half-truth and come to their own conclusions about who they are. They did not recognize themselves, but Joseph knows exactly who they are. Joseph remembers who they are. He remembers the pain they have caused. In fact, if, if you were to turn back to Genesis 37 and look at verses 19 through 20, I want you to hear the words of these honest men. Verses 19 and 20. As Joseph is coming to them and they're miles from home, he's coming to check on them out in the field. Here's what they said. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say with such truthful voice to our father that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what has become of his dreams. 
Now, they, they, they didn't say, we'll use our truthful voice, but you, you understand what's happening here. Joseph knows their character. He understands what is happening here. He, and, and here's the deal. These brothers, they, you can almost imagine them rationalizing their actions toward Joseph. I mean, rewind all the way back to 37. This brother, Joseph, he is talking about reigning and ruling over them. He's the favorite of the family. He wears special garment that sets him apart from the rest of them. You can imagine the strife and the jealousy. You can almost imagine the rationalization in these brothers' minds as they see their brother approaching them in Dotham all those years ago, and they say, here comes that dreamer. Here's what they're thinking. You know, he really just deserves this, doesn't he? We're probably doing what's best for our family by getting rid of this guy. I mean, look at all of this dissension and all of the trouble that he causes. I mean, it's actually probably the best thing we could do is to get rid of this guy. You can almost imagine them rationalizing their sin. You want to know why we can imagine that? It's because I think you and I are experts at doing the exact same thing. Husbands. How easy is it to rationalize a flirtatious relationship at work? or even going beyond that, or, or to going to certain places on your computer, and then you can rationalize it by saying things, well, my wife, she's not really there for me the way I need her to be. Wives, how, how often have you done the same thing? You can rationalize your, your bitterness or the way you cut him down with your words and the way you disrespect him, and, and you do that all the while rationalizing it and saying, well, he's not the leader he should be. He doesn't pray with our family the way he should. And so you make the connection that justifies or rationalizes your sins. Teenagers. Teenagers. <laughs> you don't do this at all, do you? As a teenager, the easiest thing is to rationalize your disobedience to your parents. They just don't understand how the life works anymore, do they? They don't get the, what you have to deal with and the pressures you face. And so why should you really have to honor them or respect them or obey them? They don't really understand the way life works. Or even moms and dads who are abusive to their kids, well, they had what's coming to them. How many more examples can we go through? We can rationalize all day long. Our sin is so easy to rationalize. We're so good at self-deception. This is exactly what we find in these brothers. And, and if, if we're willing to be honest for a moment, this is exactly what we can find in our own hearts. But the, the story doesn't get stuck here. Let's continue to press into the text a little bit further. Let's keep going because what we're going to see is that confession creates change opportunities. Now, when I say confession here, I'm talking about the, the slightest, tiniest sliver of confession. This is not a full confession. This isn't true repentance. This is just a, this is just a, a taste, a foretaste of confession. But what we're going to see is, is these brothers, they begin to get real with who they are and what they've done. And we're going to see that things start to change as that happens. First of all, the situation that leads them to confession, really, it begins with Joseph testing them. See, the test is to discover who they are now. Remember what they are saying to, to Joseph? They're saying, we are, the, we are 12 sons of one man. He says, one of these brothers is at home with dad, and one of them is no more. Joseph recognizes Benjamin's not there. Joseph has to be wondering if Benjamin is okay. Joseph has to be wondering if Benjamin's even alive. 
So this test is, it's, it's Joseph's way of figuring out who these brothers are and, and how is Benjamin? Verse 15, Joseph says this. He says, by this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. He, he, Joseph, is, he's putting them to the test. Say, here's the test. You're going to bring this, this mythical little brother that exists. I don't know if he exists. You're going to bring him here or you're, you're not going to leave this land. But Joseph is also being tested himself. If we were to slow down and look at what's going on in Joseph's head and Joseph's heart, it would be fascinating to know all the thoughts that are crossing his mind. I mean, Joseph's being tested himself. Look at how he begins to, this is the plan that he starts with, verses 16 and 17. He says, send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. I mean, there's got to be something in him that says, now I'm going to get back at him. I mean, here's what he says. He says, I'm going to imprison you for three days. And at the end of three days, one of you is going to take the journey alone back to Canaan. And the rest of you are going to stay in prison until he returns with your youngest brother. This is likely a death sentence. Imagine being a solitary person traveling from Egypt to Canaan when there is a famine across the whole land and everyone in the world is desperate. You know what that's called? Easy pickings. This is not a good situation for the one that he sends back. And if he doesn't return, guess where those nine are going to stay till the day they die? Right in prison, just like Joseph spent all those years. Joseph's first reaction, there seems to be a little bit of anger. There seems to be a little bit of spite. There seems to be a little bit of not God's justice, but my justice. And you almost can't blame him. Joseph's being tested himself, though. Look at what happens next. We, we find that fear of God changes Joseph's direction. Joseph changes his plan. This is, I think this is incredible. Look at verses 18 through 20. It says, On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live. There's a little bit of hope there. For I fear God. If you were honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest to me so that the words, your words may be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. This is a dramatic change. One day he's sending one of them on a death, likely death mission. <laughs> Three days later, he says, one of you will remain and the rest of you will go back with grain for your families. What is it that Joseph describes really as the, 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 the catalyst for his change? Find it in the text. Go ahead and look. For I fear God. I just am fascinated by imagining Joseph sitting there for three days, praying for three days, agonizing for three days, and coming to the conclusion that what he was about to do was not right. It was not right because he fears God. See, fear of God can change our direction almost as quickly as it changed Joseph's. 
When we step back from the situation, when we step back from our initial response, our emotional reaction, the anger, the spite, the revenge, the self-justified action, when we step back and we say things like, what would God have me do here? Look at how it changes the direction in your notes, I included a handful of passages about the fear of God. I'm not going to read them all, but let me, let me show you a couple of them. Job 28, verse 28, it says, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. Isn't this exactly what Joseph's doing? He's got a plan that's mixed with evil, and he's turning away from it. Psalm 111, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have good understanding. His praise endures forever. Fear of the Lord is not an emotion, church. Fear of the Lord is an action. It says those who practice it, those who, who put action into it, those who say, what is God's character and what would have God have me do in this moment? That is what the fear of the Lord looks like. This changes his direction. Let's look back at the brothers, though. Because as Joseph's direction, his plan changes, the brothers' guilt catches up to them. This is that verse we began with. Look at how the brothers' guilt catches up to them. Verses 21 through 22. Says then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. This is a guilty conscience, is what it is. They are facing insurmountable life situations. And as they look at what they have to deal with, they say, you know what the reason for this is? This is because of the evil we've done. This, this is not a full-fledged confession. This is not repentance. But, but there's a sliver of confession in this. They are beginning to own their sin See, see, all these years, all these 20 years, they've been carrying around this unaddressed sin. And the deal is, unaddressed sin, it is like rot for the soul. When you carry around sin without repentance and without confession, when you harbor it and when you justify it, it impacts you internally. It, 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 it's a burden that you end up carrying. Just look at Psalm 32. David's writing about his sin before he confessed it. Verses three and four, he says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand, God's hand, was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. You ever felt that way in your unrepentance? It's like taking a step. It's like you can barely do it because your, your strength is dried up. Proverbs 14.30 says, A tranquil heart, a peaceful heart gives life to the flesh, but envy, a, a sinful, envious life, it makes the bones rot. And this is why God, in part, wants you to deal with your sin. One of the worst things you could ever do is ignore it. One of the worst things you can ever do is keep it hidden. 
You can go years and decades playing the game, putting on the face, but internally, the scripture says it's like your strength is dried up and your soul is rotting. You know what that sounds like? That sounds like how we describe depression. Now, hear me clearly. I'm not saying everyone that's depressed means they have unrepentant sin. That's not what I'm saying. But I do know carrying around your sin and not dealing with it is, has the same kind of impact. It wears on you internally. Do you have sin in your life that needs to be addressed? Do you have something you know God's calling you to deal with, but you've just been unwilling to? Now let's see what happens as the story continues. Look at what happens as they confess. Their confession, it causes a reaction in Joseph. Their confession causes Joseph's compassion. Now, just like they don't have a full-fledged confession, Joseph doesn't have full-fledged compassion at this point. But I want you to see how his compassion begins to be revealed. Verses 23 through 24. It says, They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept, and he returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. This is amazing. Here's what happens. All of the conversation they've had up to this point, Joseph has been speaking to them in the Egyptian tongue, and he has had an interpreter interpreting it so that the Hebrews could understand back and forth all of their conversation. And so the brothers have ignorantly assumed that Joseph can't understand a word they say. And so when they confess, when they say, we have this distress on our souls because we saw the distress of our brother's soul when he he begged us, and we did not listen. Joseph hears it all. These words rock his world. Joseph has to turn, and he leaves. He likely is outside of the room, outside of their visible ability to see them. You can almost imagine him crumbling to the ground or falling into a puddle in tears as he is realizing his brothers understand the weight of pain they have placed upon him. And so his compassion starts. We're not going to see it full-fledged until later in the story. This, conf- this compassion, though, it-, it begins to create more opportunities for them. I, I would say that this-, this confession combined with Joseph's compassion, it creates faith opportunities now. Joseph is about to send the nine brothers back, and they have some opportunities on how they're going to trust God and how they're going to make decisions. They have opportunities on whether or not they're going to fear the Lord. Let me show you what I mean. Confession creates faith opportunities. Verses 25 through, uh, we'll stop about 28. It says, And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another saying, What is this? that God has done to us. Why aren't they thrilled about money being their sack? Why do their hearts fail? Why are they afraid? 
Well, now when they go back to Egypt, if they go back to Egypt, not only are they going to be accused of as being spies, but now they are thieves. This is, this is terrible news. And notice what they say. Not, what have the Egyptians done to us? Not, what has the governor done to us? What has God done to us? They recognize God's hand upon their lives because God is, he's moving them to do what? To deal with their sin. Let's keep going. Verse 29. When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, This man, the Lord, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. There, one is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. And they emptied their sacks. Behold, every, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. The, the, the nine make it back home. <clears throat> they make it back home with all the grain they need to, to outlast part of this famine. And then their hearts sink again as they realize all of them have their money returned. The, the, this, this section ends with them being afraid. They are afraid because they have some decisions to make. How are they going to respond to the opportunities that lie before them? How are they going to respond? I wish I can tell you their initial responses are great godly responses. But in fact, as chapter 42 comes to a close, we see three responses and each of them are the wrong responses. Let me just show you these wrong responses. Wrong response number one is faithlessness. Look at Jacob. Jacob, this is the patriarch. This is the man who wrestled with God and was renamed Israel. This is the man that God has been faithful to his entire life, giving him the birthright and the inheritance, helping him be reunited with his brother Esau and not be killed by his brother. This man has been blessed. This man is, had God work in his life in miraculous ways. Look at what he says, verse 36. Then Jacob, their father, said to him, "'You have bereaved me of my children.'" Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. You, you bereaved me. You boys, you boys, it's your fault. Joseph's no more. We don't know. He probably doesn't know the story, but somehow he blames him. And look, he's already counting Simeon as lost. Simeon's in jail in Egypt, and jo or Jacob's counting him as dead. And he says that even if you take Benjamin, Benjamin will die. You, you could say this is a wrong response of faithlessness. I almost put fatalism. You know what fatalism is? Nothing's going to work out. Everything's terrible. He, here's what he is doing. He's doing the adult version of nobody loves me, everybody hates me, I might as well go eat worms. This is what he's doing. He, he's having a pity party where he has, look, zero faith whatsoever. He doesn't lift his eyes up to the Lord. He doesn't trust in Yahweh who has been there time and time again. 
he's completely faithless in this moment. How about you? How about in the difficult situations you find yourself in these days? Where you have a hard decision to make, a risky decision to make, where there is, there is something that matters and a decision needs to be made. Are, are, are you eyes on the ground in pessimism, hating everything about life, or are you lifting your eyes? See, in the situations you face, here's what I would say. Here's the application in this moment. Today, instead of responding in faithlessness, trust in Christ. Trust in Christ. Hebrews puts it this way. He says, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere their souls. Listen, if you are in Christ, faithlessness is not an option. If you are in Christ, lack of trusting God, even in the most terrifying of situations, is not an option. If you are in Christ, if you have to do something scary, you don't do it alone. Trust in Christ. Wrong wrong response number one is faithlessness. Let's keep going. What's the second wrong response? The second wrong response is foolishness. Look at verse 37. This is Reuben. By the way, Reuben... He has already lost his birthright. Reuben has been looking for ways that he could please his father and make up for his great sins. And he, he keeps blundering it, to be honest. And this is probably the worst example. Verse 37, Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons. If I do not bring him back to you, put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. I mean, this, first of all, imagine being one of his sons standing next to him when he says this, right? Not a good family dynamic here at all. But here's what he says. He just has a foolish answer. He is trying to solve a God-sized problem with a man-made action. So here's what we'll do. Dad, trust me. I'll take Benjamin. And if we don't come back, you can kill my two boys. Like that's going to fix anything. I mean, well, worst case scenario... Reuben takes Benjamin, fails the mission. Benjamin does not come back. What do you think Jacob's going to want to do? All right, grandsons, come on over. It's time, to, it's time to face the consequences of your dad. This fixes nothing. This is just outright foolishness. But the foolishness is, I think, maybe I'll just say for myself as a guy, this is the easiest response. Let me throw myself headlong into the situation thinking I can fix it based on my intellect, based on my ability, based on my strength without looking to God and his help. See, instead of responding in foolishness, trust in Christ. Trust in Christ. Let's go back to whatever difficult situations you're facing today, whatever big decisions you have ahead of you. How do you avoid being foolish? Jesus' words. I'm just going to give you one verse, Matthew 7, verse 26. You can look at the whole context later. Here's what Jesus says. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Jesus says there's two kinds of people, the one who listens to his word and the one who does not, the one who obeys his word and the one who does not, the one who is wise and the one who is foolish. Simply put, when we face decisions of difficulty, we should be scouring the word of God saying, how does God want this situation handled? Wrong response number one is a response of faithlessness. Wrong response number two is a response of foolishness. But wrong response number three is a response of fear. 
response of fear. Look at how this chapter ends. Verse 38. But he, Jacob, he said, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm should happen on him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. This man who has seen God work in miraculous ways in his life is crippled by fear. It's not going to happen. I'm not going to walk in faith. We're not going to send Benjamin. He is terrified. He, he is so terrified. He says, if, if something bad were to happen, it would kill me on the instant. My gray hairs, I would descend to the place of the dead. He is gripped by fear. Turn on the news. Look familiar? Look around our world. Seem reminiscent of our world? Who, you in Christ, if you are in Christ, to the difficult situations you face, you are not to be gripped in fear. Instead, today, instead of responding in fear, trust in Christ. Trust in Christ. Let, let, me, let me bring this all the way back around to the big idea. Today we began by talking about how the, the, the shadow of guilt is a dark place to live. If you're here today or maybe even watching online and you're recognizing the places in your life where you're carrying guilt that has been undealt with, you're recognizing the darkness that you are experiencing because of that. Listen, the shadow of guilt is a dark place to live, but you know what Jesus says? Jesus says this, I am the light of the world. Whoever walks in me will not walk in darkness. He, very simply put, let me, let me just plead with you for a moment. If this is you, if you are dealing with this internal turmoil of guilt, I want you to know right now that Jesus isn't here to judge. He isn't here to point fingers. He isn't here to condemn. He is here to offer his grace freely. This is an invitation to come and find the grace and the mercy and the kindness of Jesus. This is an opportunity to come and confess whatever it is in your life to him and know that he will meet you with his forgiveness. This is the great truth of all of Scripture. And today, we are going to, we're going to come to him in one of the greatest ways possible. In a few minutes, we're going to share communion. Now, let, me, let me say a few things, and then I'm going to give you a few instructions. But, but communion is for those who have trusted in Jesus and his death and resurrection. It's for those who have been baptized into Christ and say, now I am in Christ, I believe that. And so when you came in, uh, there was an adorable little seven-year-old handing out communion cups to everyone. But, but if you grabbed one of those and you have not trusted in Christ, I would encourage you just to leave that cup on the table or on your seat. It's not that we want to exclude you, but this is not your declaration of faith. This is a declaration of those who believe in Jesus. And that said, in a few minutes, I'm going to ask you to grab that cup. If you don't have one, there's some in the back. You're welcome to go get one. But between now and then, I'm going to give you a few moments. Just you and the Lord. I'm just going to give you space to bow your head, to go to him in prayer, and to confess whatever it is that is covering you in that darkness of guilt. Take this moment to remember his grace once again, to be renewed and refreshed. And then after a few moments, I'll come back and we'll we'll remember Jesus' death and resurrection together and what it means for us. Make sense? Go ahead and, and bow your head and take a moment with the Lord.
Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come to you as, as such a, an amazing Heavenly Father. We thank you that you loved us so much that you didn't want to make it so we had to remain in the, in the darkness of the shadow of our guilt. We thank you that in your love, you sent your son, Jesus. And we thank you that Jesus lived a perfect life. And we humbly thank you that he died as our substitute. Thank you, Father, that he paid the price for all of our sin. And now because of his death and because of his resurrection, all of our guilt and all of our shame, all of our sin has been washed away. And in Christ, we have been made new. Father, we thank you. Father, I pray that this truth right now, as we come to you confessing our sin and confessing our weakness, I pray that you would renew each of us as we turn our eyes toward Jesus once again. Heavenly Father, we do confess our sin. This last week, we have sinned in the way we've spoken. We've sinned in the way we've acted. We have sinned in our thoughts and in our desires. And yet we know because of Christ, none of that's held against us. So Father, as we remember these things, Lord, please work in our hearts and our minds so that we have an even greater love for you. So that we're, we're quickly turning away from our sin, quickly turning away from temptation, and eager to serve you and to know you and to love you. Not because we have to earn anything, but because of your great love for us. And Father, we pray this rejoicing in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, while we're still using these plastic cups, there's a little bit of a process that's involved. And so let me walk you through this process. It makes the most sense if we just, everyone opens their cup right now. Go ahead and pull the wafer out, but then also go ahead and open the cup so that the juice is open. And I'm going to wait till all of the crinkling ends. And so just take your time, make sure you get it open, and then we'll move on together after everyone's opened up. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and after he gave thanks, he broke it. And just a moment ago, we gave thanks to the Lord. And so now I want to invite you to take that wafer and let's, let's remember Jesus' words. After he broke it, he said this. He said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
Let's remember his broken body together. Scripture says in the same way, after the meal, he took the cup. It says, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. The old covenant was one of trying to be good enough but never being able to. The new covenant is Jesus' blood spilt, shed for us for our forgiveness. He says, this is the new covenant. And so every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Let's remember his blood spilt on our behalf. I'm so thankful we were able to spend this morning together. I hope you were encouraged today. I hope you were challenged today. We are going to conclude our service with, with one more song, and we're going to receive an offering. There are some ushers in a, during the last song. They'll make their way through the room. So if you want to turn in an offering or any connection card, you can just pop it in that bucket. But, but I have one last thing I want to say before we, we end with singing. If you are here today and you find yourself trapped in the shadow of guilt, if you find yourself confessing and falling and confessing and falling and feeling like you have no idea how to get out of the cycle, I just want to offer you the friendship of this church. There are many people in this church that would, that they would be honored to meet with you, to walk with you, and to pray with you. I will offer myself to anyone who says, I, I need to figure this out. Just reach out. You can email, you can text, you can grab us after service. We've got Stephen Leader. There's all sorts of men and women that lead that would love to disciple you. Don't be afraid and don't keep stuck in that, in that shadow of guilt by yourself. And that said, let's all stand together. And as we stand together, let's lift our voices in celebration of the finished work of Jesus in his death and resurrection.